0: Welcome to How It's Med, a podcast about medical
1: innovators and taste breakers. My name is Abdo. And I'm Jeff. Together, we explore the exciting stories of leaders in medicine and in the medtech industry. Hey Abdo, have you ever heard about brain?
0: That makes no sense, but go on.
1: Like, what is the brain? And like, how on earth can someone... Dovetail cutting edge research on non-invasive neuroimaging into founding several large-scale health technology initiatives literally on either coast of Canada. Okay, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves,
0: but I'm beginning to suspect that you might be talking about Dr. Ryan Darcy. Get it ahead? Like brain head? P- please explain.
1: Let's just get started. Whatever. I understand that uh, you actually grew up in Williams, or you you you, you were born in Williams Lake,
2: correct? Born in Williams Lake and grew up in Williams Lake. Yeah,
1: awesome. So tell us how you got from Williams Lake to where you are now, because I, I actually did my general surgery rotation at Williams Lake a little while back, and it's it's a long ways away.
2: <laughs> yeah, Caribou Memorial Hospital. That was where I was born. I I um I grew up and uh, in a family that was fairly uh, focused on uh, academics and university. Uh, I was mo- much more interested in skiing, so there came a point where, uh, rather than go into the mountains, my dad uh, took me down to the coast to uh, Vancouver Island to a private school called Brownwood College, mm-hmm. and Brownwood was really to prep you for uh, going into university, and uh, that probably took me on the on the path through university to becoming a, a, a neuroscientist that I am today. So, why do you choose the neurosciences overall? Yeah, I've I, you know I've been asked that question a number of times, and I my first memory of being interested in the brain uh, was definitely in grade eleven biology. I was loving biology and physics, and my biology teacher, which is amazing, because uh, he his name is David McCarthy, and he and I actually work together now on collaborative projects, which is super cool but he noticed that i liked biology and so we were about to do the cow eyeball dissection and he said listen ryan I, I, you really love this stuff so if you want you tell me what i'll get you something else and and uh, i thought about it and i and we we decided on a dogfish and so he'd actually gone out and found a dogfish and i i got to dissect a dogfish and it, it was really interesting because I don't know why, but at the time, all I really wanted to know was uh, to get into the dogfish's brain, which I don't think I ever really successfully did. So maybe neurosurgery wasn't my career route, but uh, I, I remember very much being interested in focus to see this dogfish's brain. And that, that was kind of the first sense that I was going to be a neuroscientist. Um, I always joke that ahead of that, uh, I knew I was going to be a scientist rather than an engineer because I would take all my toys apart. And I'd never, ever care or figure out how to put them back together. Right? So the engineers would put them back together. I would just take them apart to figure out how they worked and leave them in bits and pieces. <laughs> that's, that's,
0: that's actually really awesome. I love that story. Uh, I guess we could talk about the
2: other arm of your interest, which is entrepreneurship. How did you get into that? Yeah, and entrepreneurship is a, is a funny story. Um, in the sense that I was... Uh, I was a little further along in my career so I'd gone through and done my PhD in neuroscience and then actually did my postdoc in basically what would be uh, uh, hardcore physics and engineering uh, around medical uh, diagnostic imaging MRIs and that sort of thing and I I then decided to leap off and uh, take a big job building uh, uh, basically a biotech cluster out in Halifax and as I was going through that uh, I was starting to get sort of identified by the higher ups at National Research Council because I was, was with the National Research Council. And they were starting to groom me to become kind of up in the leadership of that. And I sort of looked at it and I thought, well, um, I'm not sure if I want to be like a career long um, administrator in Ottawa. And at the time, my mentor, who was a, a very eminent, um, medical technology innovator, uh, named, uh, Dr. Ian Smith, he, he was pushing me a little bit to say, Hey, listen, you're doing amazing in research and you've built this cluster, but you haven't commercialized yet. You haven't uh, taken technology and transferred it. And that, that rub, like he was right, but I was like, you know, so, um, so I started thinking about that a little more and I start uh, it was funny. It was one weekend and I was like, well, okay. Um, well, am I an entrepreneur do I have entrepreneurial components? And so what I did is I ended up um, just Googling a quiz, if you can. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I, I, I tried not to like load the quiz and, and make my answers realistic. And at the end of the result, it was like way off the charts, right? So I was like, oh, okay. Um, I should think a little bit more about this. Um, it was really important as a scientist to figure out why. And I had seen with the tech that we had created in the lab, that it could help patients in dramatic and huge, huge ways. But yet it, it didn't seem like it had a path there. It wasn't necessarily going to go. Um, if you published it, your peers would read it and go great article. Uh, but it didn't necessarily have, uh, an obvious route to helping patients. And, and that's when I realized that the business world was where you created a product or a service. And if you did that, it could get out in the world and help people. And so that's when I really got interested in, in entrepreneurship and commercialization. Interesting. Just to tie it together then, what do you see then as the role of a
0: scientist entrepreneur?
2: Uh, the, the role of, I would say the role of a scientist entrepreneur, which would be the same as the role of a clinician entrepreneur, and, and that's a really interesting area that's evolving uh, with a lot of our young clinicians today, is, is not to accept the status quo. Uh, so we, we would look at, uh, well, if you're a scientist, your idea is to, is really to discover knowledge and, and really sort of stop there. And I think if you push it forward and you say, okay, now I need to implement knowledge. That's when the entrepreneurial part, uh, comes in. Right. And, um, it's the same with a clinician. I, I mean, I was thinking about it this morning and most, uh, most textbook knowledge we all know is dusty right i mean to make it into a textbook it's been a long time uh, for that knowledge to be kicking around and yet when you see a, a patient in front of you you want you want to give them the latest the state of the art and i think that clinician entrepreneurs are really moving in the same place as scientist entrepreneurs because they don't want to just go off some dusty textbook knowledge. They know there's better out there. And so they're, they're finding the ways to get it to their patients and, and uh, make sure they can give the best care possible. So I'd say they're very much the same in that way.
1: So I guess in the end, because you're trying to figure out ways in which you can apply the findings that you've made in the lab to patients, have you unironically in the end become kind of an engineer yourself?
2: Yeah. So I have a professional, uh, engineering license. Uh, it's a limited license. I can practice only in neuroimaging and and neurotechnology. Uh, but it, it was interesting because a lot of my training really focused on hybrid training. So I took my hardcore neuroscience and sort of then became very much focused on the engineering physics of non-invasive imaging. And we would, we would be, uh, like we were an institute of engineers and physicists who uh, basically built MRIs and other well, large-scale medical imaging devices and portable ones, and um, it was really comes back to what I, I said earlier about my my interests in science were both biology and physics. So I, I kind of ended up marrying those two, I think, and loving it. Um, now that being said, I'm I'm not. You know, when you play on these teams, you have to be conversant. So if you're working with an engineer or physicist, you have to recognize their training and and really say, okay, I can speak your language. I know these critical issues, but please help me here. Right. You can't, you can't um, pretend, you know, uh, or are trained in the, in the level of engineering and physics that they are, but that's what makes it fun. Right. Like when I was looking at it and I thought, okay, well, if you were in a, uh, let's say you were in a faculty of neuroscience, pretty much you look down the hall, you got a bunch of neuroscientists. And everyone thinks they know what all the others do so they're not really interested in chatting with you because they kind of in some ways might see you as competition but if your hallway if you look out the door and that hallway is an engineer a physicist a neuroscientist a neurosurgeon a neurologist a computer scientist a psychologist now you could do some transformative stuff right because you can go up to any one of those and say okay listen i understand your problem and i've got this problem and how how can we work together and 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 do stuff that you know is truly. That's when the word multidisciplinary comes into full swing. I would say our, our greatest scientific innovations, our, our our technology innovations, have been because of hybrid, uh, very high functioning, high powered teams like that.
1: That's awesome, and I think that the one one of the amazing things about that in the end is that there are visible, palpable impacts to patient well being in the end. So, in the spirit of that. What's one of the most impactful stories to you that you've seen or that you've followed along with regard to the uh, impact of technology that you've seen or worked with or made on someone's life?
2: Yeah, for sure. There are, there are two big, big uh, career uh, impacts. I'll probably spend more time on, on the work we've done. When I started in grad school, we were using EEG, electroencephalography. And more specifically, evoked potentials. Uh, so uh, we could use cognitive evoked potentials to look at um, a high-level cognitive function in very, very severe and brain injured uh, individuals, and basically uh, uh, sort of reverse a um, the thought that they were not, they were vegetative or otherwise, uh, by looking and saying, "Hey, look, they have these objective uh, brainwave responses. They're understanding at a very high level." And right from grad school. Um, my work was actually in changing clinical care trajectories, right? And I looked around at other folks that were sort of in wet labs with test tubes and I thought, oh, you know, that's, I, I really, really like being able to make a clinical impact. Um, so, so that became our brain vital signs and our neurocatch and all that. And I've stuck with that all over the course of my career, but probably the story that most people, uh, haven't heard so much of is actually in another separate re- realm of technology innovation. Um, When I was with the NRC, we got involved in a a large project. It was about 21, 22 clinical surgical sites across the country uh, and about six or seven technical engineering sites. And the goal of the project was uh, to ask the question, there are flight simulators to train pilots. So when you get on a plane, you know that that pilot has been trained on that particular uh, uh, plane in a flight simulator. And yet there weren't so so much as a simulator of of that sort for surgeons. And so this project decided we're going to change that, which I thought was really awesome. And it it decided not to go like small, it went big and we decided to focus on brain surgery and neurosurgery. And so by virtue of being kind of embedded in the hospital with all the big imaging facilities, we became the ones that created the data from advanced MRI and, and other imaging measures. And so we actually fed this project uh, all of its early uh, data around brain tumor surgeries. And what was really cool uh, is that uh, in the after a year and a half of starting and developing an early prototype, we could see that it was okay to roll it out for a clinical prime time. So we took a patient who had a, um, a meningioma, was worried about uh, It's been, uh, was going to look at neurosurgery for um, debulking the tumor, uh, but was worried about language and had grandchildren and that sort of thing. Um, Wanted to maintain the relationship, didn't want any functional impacts. And we actually, in prototype format, rolled this thing in with the neurosurgical team. And it was so amazing, right? It was the world's first brain surgery simulation that was ever done. And the, the residents, of course, are all looking at this and they're all, yeah, this is going to be a waste of time. And they started seeing that, yeah, we had rendered all of the medical images into a realistic OR scenario. So you could see the drapes, you could see the OR field. Um, You could, you could basically, what was really cool is all that data could be turned into using a finite element modeling into a haptic feedback. So you could go in and use the instruments and you could tap the skull, and it was hard. And then you could actually debulk the tumor. And so uh, we have photos where these uh, somewhat cynical at uh, the start residents all of a sudden are clamoring over each other to try and get there, right? Because as as you know, um, when you're first starting neurosurgery, they don't let you as close to uh, the patient as they do when you're like a PGY four or five. Yep, or yes. And and so um, they were all like just going crazy for it. And what was really fun was um, we actually did the rehearsal um, and I'll never forget this, we did the rehearsal and then we, um, that night met with the patient and the family and said, rather than uh, what is commonly, the question is um, how many of these have you done before doctor? Uh, We, she got to ask the the question, um, how did my virtual brain surgery go? Right. I mean, you can imagine how anxiety relieving that was for her to say, yeah, it went really well. You know, we're really confident. We feel good. And uh, so then we took her into the OR and we did the surgery and uh, it was a huge success. And what was amazing is this went wild. Right. So the media were phoning us in the OR. Uh, word had got out and the uh, the OR nurse was coming in saying, yeah, we're getting asked for the media. And so um, she recovered uh, one day and then was actually in a in a press conference where all ca- uh, Canadian national media uh, stopped and went live. And so she's hanging out, um, we're sitting beside, and the neurosurgery simulator is there. Um, we're just doing a full media show all day. And um, she leans over and and gives me a big kiss, right? And the first thing I thought is, whoa, hey, your husband's on the other side. but. But she was just awesome, and she was just so thankful and happy. And, and I, I sort of was standing to the side at one moment, and my vice president of research, who was a physician, he said, do you realize how rare that is, right? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, do you realize that it is incredibly rare that something you develop in a lab directly impacts a patient like this? And I was like, wow, yeah, you're right. Um, and that really drove the point home to me that, you know, uh, if whatever you're doing in the lab, you should make it your goal to try and get hugged or kissed by a patient because that's truly translational, right? Um, so I, I did have fun asking cancer biologists if, and challenging them with that goal. But what was really interesting how that story ended was, um, uh, I started looking at the surgery because everyone was doing this and I thought it was a little weird because she was sitting right there and people were doing brain surgery on her. And then she, I thought, I hope she doesn't get up and do brain surgery on herself. And she actually ended up doing that. Um. So that was, that was pretty crazy, uh, but that, uh, that went around worldwide um, and by worldwide, really worldwide. Uh, and it turned out uh, it got then picked up by um, the maker of Flight Simulators, a, a big Canadian company called CAE, created CAE Healthcare. And that's now their primary, kind of one of their primary technologies. Um, you can look it up. It started as NeuroTouch and, and now uh, it's called NeuroVR. Uh, but it's out in the world now. Uh, and so now, uh just like when you get on a plane, uh you can have your your surgery uh recursed, um which actually we beat the plane because it's your brain, and that would be like you know the captain flying your trip, your flight, right with your weather um and in this case, it was patient specific, so it was pretty powerful. It was really fun That was a beautiful story
0: with a very sobering ending on just how to the importance of bringing research to reality. So then what's stopping more interdisciplinary collaborations from happening in your opinion?
2: Uh, I don't know if there's anything stopping it so much anymore. I I think I think that um I think that probably the the biggest barrier is is actually how we get performance uh measured, right? So, so if you think about it the performance, the way that people get their, uh, improve their careers and, and increase their, um, their standing hasn't changed. And so if you, if you think of a scientist, you've, we all know that scientists are supposed to publish or perish. So if you're in a university setting, really, in order to continue to be successful, you need to keep your publications up. And so you're not necessarily, even if you think it's important, you're not motivated to translate. There's not a lot of metrics that come in and say, listen, you created a product and service and that's, that's worth this many publications. So I think as long as we, we always have a system that is incentivizing us um, in the older school ways, we'll probably always have that barrier. I think the same is true for, for clinical medicine. Uh, a large component of clinical medicine would be about, uh, of course, patient care quality Um, And then if you get into the sort of academic side, it adopts the same science mentality. But there isn't any actual, uh, like we talk about innovation. I always say that everyone thinks innovation is a great idea. uh, As long as they get to do, they don't have to change what they're doing. And so we talk about go innovate, go innovate, but we still measure in the same way that is actually in many ways not rewarding innovation.
0: So. Mm. So that is there an obvious path forward to, to fix this issue?
2: I think it's interesting. Um, I hate to say it, but in some ways, this pandemic has been um, incredible for innovation uh, because it has broken out a lot of the barriers around risks. Uh, take like, access to patient data as one obvious example. Digital health, um, you, you know, uh, getting past using pagers and, and paper charts, right? I, I mean, having to you know re- require um, uh, volume uh, overburdened hospitals and and not be able to see your your clinician or specialist uh, via Zoom like we are today, right? I think that I think that these sorts of global level crises require innovation and that requires people to push past um, previously sort of risk averse reactions that said, oh, we can't do this because you know it's too scary, sort of thing, and now. something more scary out so we have to do it so then the follow-up question is how do we
1: make this attitude of being perhaps more risk tolerant last because certainly thankfully covid will or hopefully will go away but will this attitude last given the fact that the the urgency of the situation will disappear
2: um I think I think human behavior dictates that we we're we're, there's an expression get uncomfortable uh, get comfortable with being uncomfortable right and I think that's that's not our nature that's and and even if you look at coming out of this pandemic we want to get back to comfort right this pandemic has put us into an uncomfortable place and that's where innovation lives. You, when you live at the edge and you're taking risks and they bail and you're okay with that, um, the people that are in the center are there because they're comfortable. And, and so the vast majority of people are not necessarily inclined to be innovative, and yet they're still frustrated. They think things should change. They want things to change. But when people take risks and go push the limits, that's scary. And, and so I think the more that we can get a little more mindful about uh, having leadership and having um, uh, policies that actually support the people that take those risks. That's critical, right? There's a lot in, in sort of old school academia, for example, um, being an innovator is, is a very, very, very dangerous uh, thing to do in a university because um, it scares people, it scares the university and they, they, they really just want you to duck, publish papers and get grants right? But how's the world going to change necessarily if you don't translate?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I think that's a really fair perspective. But as the devil's advocate, um, we've also heard the perspective that in healthcare, it's certainly at some point unhealthy to disrupt things that are going on, because it's not merely, for example, just fintech or rides that you're dealing with, but rather patient lives. So how do you draw the line between being innovation forward and making sure that there's no compromise of patient care?
2: Yeah, it's it's um, it's really a, a fascinating question, because historically, as, as we all know, medicine and healthcare care uh, were derived from a military model and uh, they evolved uh, with the prime, of course, Hippocratic oath, uh, above all, do no harm which really, if you think about it, means don't take risks, right? Uh, do, do what you know is safe and deliver that care for your patient um, in the best way possible. Um, so it's very, very risk-averse uh, and, and it's always risk-averse with the patient's best interest in mind. So it's very difficult for uh, somebody who's in the clinical medical model uh, to contemplate innovation, but yet they are. Right, and I think what we're seeing is with younger generations, they're finding ways to do that where they they basically challenge the concept that innovation equals risk to patient. Um, there are a lot of ways that you can find uh, an innovation that uh, improves the outcome for the patient, and and any clinician, off the top of their head could could rattle off a ton of them, right? Um, I'm positive that in terms of time savings, we go back to that. Um, surgical in a a virtual reality simulator, the immediate benefits were um, time in the OR and time is uh, an improved outcome, right? Uh, It was also safety because if you were thinking you were going to go and take one uh, sort of uh, surgical plan and all of a sudden you discover um, based on someone's unique neuroanatomy that actually I'm going to take this one you don't discover that uh, on the patient, you discover that before the patients come into the OR. So so I think there are a lot of really rapid, tangible improvements that we can do that are innovation that actually um, improve patient quality. So I think the big pushback is to say to people, innovation doesn't equal increased risk in patient care. Innovation can actually uh, equal reduced risk. So let's go and explore that idea.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Met. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes
1: on whatever platform you listen on.
0: Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it. Wherever you listen to or on our website, howit'smed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Until next time, bye-bye.